Thank you, and uh, thanks for that welcome, and uh, it's great to be back in Cambridge again, uh, both visiting C3 and my dear family. Uh, I am continually reminded that it, it always takes folks uh, in England a couple of minutes to tune, to, to tune their ears to my accent. My, even my grandchildren are making fun of me. They're saying, Papa, would you like some cake? <laughs> yeah, not, would you like some cake? So I shall, uh, I shall uh, slow down and hope you get it. Actually, my, my talk this morning uh, comes, from, uh, it's comes from Galatians. It's about grace. I'm going to talk on just grace. And I suppose it all came to a head last year on the 25th of October uh, last year. It was 50 years to the day. Uh, when I became a Christian, accepted Christ. I was a 16-year-old boy, pretty messed up family, and uh, Jesus invaded my life. It was fantastic. 50 years, that's hard to believe, isn't it? I don't, I don't look 66 here, I don't. And then, but I tell you what, so my life changed forever. But a few, a few days later, on the Sunday, it was a Wednesday night, on the Sunday, uh, I went, to, an aunt invited me to a Bible class, and I went to it, and I met a girl, she was 14, and her name was Priscilla, and I, I married her, and that was 50 years, and her life changed forever. And then just a few, few years, few days later, 500 years previously, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, and our world changed forever. So I sort of brought me back to grace again, and I'm going to talk about that. So we're going to read in Galatians chapter 1, please. Someone said to me when I was a young Christian, if you don't get Romans and Galatians, you'll never really understand the message of grace. So read it. Uh, chapter 1, verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea, uh, of Judah that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Just to give you a little bit of context, Paul, of course, has uh, been preaching the gospel. There's a great church in Antioch. He stays there for several years. He goes on his missionary journey. When he comes back again, there's trouble. And Paul's not happy. What's happened in the meantime that Paul, of course, has been preaching the gospel of grace, that is, that getting right with God and salvation is by Christ alone. 
And what happened was that a, a group of Jewish believers had come up from Jerusalem to Antioch and actually were beginning to teach the church that not only did you have to receive Jesus, but you had to begin to keep the Jewish law, otherwise your salvation wasn't complete. So they were saying that. Now, the issue wasn't, was Jesus the Messiah? The people who came up believed that. They were Jewish believers. The issue was, did Gentiles have to become Jews? Did they have to get, if you're a man, circumcised? Did they have to keep the food laws, the Sabbath, etc., etc.? And of course, Paul's answer was this. No, you're adding to the gospel of God. You're adding to the free grace that God has offered us. And Paul gets into contention. Now, their argument, and this is really important, their argument was, well, Paul, you see, you came down to Jerusalem when you met Jesus on the Damascus Road, and you heard the gospel from the apostles, but you corrupted it. So Paul's very careful to point out his history, because it's really important. He says, whenever, God, whenever Jesus appeared to me, he said, I didn't go to Jerusalem. And the gospel that I've been preaching was, number one, it was by revelation from God. I didn't hear it from the original apostles. Actually, I got it direct from God. But then he says, but not only that, he said, when I, when I eventually did meet them, they endorsed the very message I was preaching. It wasn't any different. It was exactly the same. He says, that's what happened. He said, they rejoiced because of what God had done in my life. So their argument was null and void. The new family would have been divided before it even got started. The Jews wouldn't have fellowship with unclean Gentiles. And therefore, this became what we call a deal breaker. It becomes a deal breaker. It is Christ alone, not plus anything. So Paul's authority is challenged. Now, when we, when we come to, let me just come to verse 15 and 16, and I'm going to give you three points to which I'm going to hang my thoughts on. So if you're Baptist, you'll love this, okay? It says, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, that is, God's grace revealed to him, okay? And then he says, God was pleased to reveal his son in me. That's God's grace revealed in him. God's grace at work in him. And then he says, that I may preach him among the Gentiles. That's God's grace proclaimed through him. What about that? Hey, three pointers. You don't get many of them these days. So God's grace revealed to him, God's grace at work in him, and God's grace proclaimed through him. Let's get a working definition of grace. First of all, grace and mercy go together. You, rare, you rarely see them separate, separated in Scripture. So mercy is this. Mercy is that we don't get what we do deserve. We don't get what we do deserve. What do we deserve? The judgment of God. Grace is that we get what we don't deserve, which is the favor of God. And they go side by side. You've got mercy, you get grace. You're enjoying grace, you've got mercy. The two are interlinked, two sides of the one coin. So God's grace revealed to him. So Paul's gra the, the grace of God is revealed to Paul. And actually, I think it tells us something about the nature of salvation. And it's this, Christianity is a revealed faith. So well, what do you mean by that, Paul? Well, it can't be discovered by human reasoning, though it is a reasonable faith. It can't be discovered by acquiring knowledge. Many people know the Bible and don't know God. But Christianity can only be understood by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, th that means something. We've got to be really careful about how we share the gospel and how we understand it. Because sometimes in churches, and honestly, I put my hand up and I've done it, we treat the gospel like a product. We treat the congregation like consumers. I'm the, I'm the salesman, and my job is to overcome resi consumer resistance and persuade you to buy the product. Honestly, that's, that sometimes happens. But here's the point. If Christianity is a revealed faith, and you can't understand it except God shows it to you, then this, this is the point. The preacher cannot overcome consumer resistance. Too big an obstacle for us to overcome. Actually, my job is to expose the resistance, because there is willful resistance, and to truthfully and faithfully proclaim the gospel of grace. Paul develop, develops a little bit in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'll, I'll, I'll expound this uh, and have a look at what these verses mean. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. And he, Paul, again, is under attack. <laughs> They're criticizing his preaching. They, they hounded him wherever he went. And the, here's what he says. And even if our gospel is veiled, they were saying, when you preach, you're not a great preacher. And people aren't getting converted. And he says this. And even if our gospel is veiled, covered, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Then he says this, astounding. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And verse 3 tells us exactly what the resistance is. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of those who don't believe the gospel. Anybody who hears the gospel is not a Christian, has spiritual cataracts over their eyes. You ever wonder why your friends think you're crazy? But they're spiritually blind. There's a, there's a cover over their eyes. And they can't see what you can see with clarity. What's that? The glory of God in the face of Jesus. There's a spiritual battle going on for men and women in our society. And over their hearts, there's willful resistance. They're resisting. But Satan is also at work. And Paul, Paul points out, it's not because of any deficiency in his own preaching that's the key factor in people not turning to Christ. But what? Due to a spiritual barrier in their own souls. Now, you say, well, well then how does anybody get converted? What actually happens? Well, I think two things happen at the moment of someone's conversion. And I'll, I'll link it up with my own. And, and I'll say this. God is already at work in a person's life. So you find, generally speaking, something's stirring in you. It might be, what is life all about? It might be, I'm in a crisis. It might be something, something has been, been done to them, or they've done something. But there's something going on, something working in their life. God's at work in their life. And when they hear the gospel, when they hear the grace of God being preached, what does it do? God uses it to bring revelation to them and a clarity to what's actually going on in their life. And number two, God then uses that message to bring that person to faith, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. I guarantee if I, if I asked you all to tell, all of you are Christians to tell your story, you'd say it's exactly the same thing. You came to a moment, there's something going on, and you heard about Jesus, and it made sense. And your eyes, it was almost, wow, I didn't see it 10 seconds ago, but I see it now. That's why we talk about, I saw the light. 
something happened. Now, some people, if you're just a little, a little, uh, little side theological point, if you're a Calvinist, and I don't want to get into it, but you can look it up, then the Calvinists believe that when that light comes and God sends that light, you cannot resist it. You cannot resist it. Wesley believed that God initiated salvation, God sustained salvation, and he completed it. But there was the capacity in every human being, the ability to say, I'm resisting that light. I'm resisting that light. And some of us would be more amenable to that point of view. Me, in other words. We were all, we're all the same. Either you were or are the same. That's what happened to you and me. The only reason any preaching has any effect in you is because God chooses to accompany it with something that none of us can provide. What? His own miracle of spiritual illumination. Sometimes it can be a, a stirring of the soul. Sometimes it can be a blinding light. In fact, Paul, in verses 5 and 6, he says this, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. He's looking back to his own conversion. Whenever he went alone, he was... Now, now remember what's happening here. Paul's going along, there's a blinding light, and Jesus speaks to him and says, It's hard for you to, 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 to uh, resist the conscience Paul, even though he was fanatical, he said, in fact, in the, in the uh, King James, it is, uh, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks, the prick of his conscience. There was something going on in his life. He was beginning to question what was going on, and he saw this incredible light, and he met Jesus. And what does Paul say? Paul says, so, you know something, what happened to me? I just, I just preached Jesus. I tell him who he is. I tell him what he's done over and over again. And as I do, you know what happens? The Holy Spirit seems to take the veil over their hearts and they see what I saw on that day, the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus. And he talks about, he puts it in, quotes, in quotation marks in our scripture. He, said, uh, he says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now it's a reference to two things. Number one, uh, uh, most primarily, it's a reference to Genesis chapter one. And what Paul's doing is this, he, he's, he's drawing a comparison between the creation of the world and the light that God shines into a man and a woman's heart. He's saying, the miracle of God creating earth, or sorry, I'll put the other way around, the miracle of someone coming to Christ is as great a miracle as when God created the earth. You say, what, you're kidding. No, God said, let there be light, and a new, whole new world was created. It's the same way God speaks into a man or a woman's heart and he goes, let there be light. What happens? A whole new world begins. So, and then, he, and also on, on a secondary level, he's comparing it to his own experience of the light shining in his heart in, uh, in, uh, on the Damascus Road. Now, when that happens, it's the most incredible thing. It happened to me as a 16-year-old boy. I sat in a Drummond-esque gospel hall. It's a little brother in assembly. And a great uncle invited me to meetings. And I, and I went, I, I, I wasn't thinking about anything. But when the Sunday night, honestly, I, something started to happen in my heart. And I thought, I need to get right with God. I, I, so I, I need to hand my, and I went on Monday night, I went on Tuesday night. And on the Wednesday night, 
I sat there and I just said, Jesus, I don't really understand what's happening here. I don't, but something's happening. I don't really understand what it's all about. But honestly, as a, as a young boy, broken young man, I opened up my heart and my life and invited Jesus to come in, forgive my sins, and life was never the same again. What happened? The light shone. Just shone. And there's a and it's important because it's funny, that's why people get converted under preaching that we don't think is very good. I sometimes I go to meetings and I go, that's a terrible preacher. I'm serious, I could preach far better than them. But you know something? People come to Christ. Why? Because they talk about Jesus. In fact, Paul, in Philippians chapter 1, when he's in prison, people started preaching the gospel to get him into trouble. You read it. And he goes, I rejoice that the gospel is being preached. He didn't care. He didn't care what got him in trouble. He says, well, listen, as long as people are getting converted, that's the main thing. And it's really important. It means this. We preach the gospel at all times and we share our faith to others on a regular basis. Seriously, tell your story to people. Just tell them what Jesus has done in your life. Phil and I went on our first cruise recently. And uh, honestly, I, I've never met so many people... Uh, in recent years, who, who I got an opportunity to talk to about Jesus. I, I, I met one guy, and he said to me, I t- he said, they all, it always comes down, what do you do for a living? You know, and you have to tell them. Uh, and I, and I said, he said, oh, I'm the world's greatest atheist. I said, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in. I said, well, you know, there must be some reason why you don't believe in. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. So he talked a little bit, and I went, I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> and we got, we got incredible opportunities to tell people about Jesus. That man's wife then came up, aren't you, the, aren't you the minister? I need to talk to you. You know, we got the most incredible, incredible opportunities. And I think the lesson for us is this. Please, tell your story and tell it often. You know, you know, just tell your story and tell it often. You say, but, but, but we need to get to it. No, honestly, because remember, remember, it's God's work to illuminate people's hearts, and it's your job to tell them the story of Jesus. You tell them and allow God to do what he wants to do, which is lift the veil. And when you do that, that's when you see people coming to Christ. So it, it means this, please, it doesn't take a slick presentation of the gospel to get anybody converted today. It, it, you just say the right formula and, every, and somebody will get saved. That's a heresy. It's a complete and utter lie. It's not true. It's spiritual blindness that stops people getting converted. And it's preaching. It's the condition of the soil that counts their heart, not the presentation of the preacher. Now listen, we use argument. We use logic. We see the supernatural work. We engage with culture. We speak in a language everybody can understand, but no amount of that will change a person's response and receptivity to the gospel. It's the Spirit of God who does that, okay? You do your work, let God do His work. Okay, number two, God's work of grace in Him. I'm running slightly behind time, but that's okay. Uh, one, of, one of Paul's arguments was, was this, that uh, to, to the apostles, to the people in, in uh, Antioch and Galatia, was that the gospel worked, the gospel message that he preached actually worked. So whatever grace was revealed to him, 
began to work in him and change him. That's why he says at the end of chapter one, he says that the apostles recognized that whatever happened to me, whatever you call it, it was a genuine experience. And the man who used to blaspheme and persecute the church is now praising God. So whatever had begun in him began to work in him. And I think it's really important that we understand that our gospel doesn't descend into just good behavior. That when we tell people about the free grace of God and how God loves them unconditionally, they have nothing to do. They give themselves, they, they offer themselves to God and he forgives them and he pours favor on them. That we don't immediately say to him, you need to shape up or things are going to go wrong in your life. That's not Christianity. Now, there's a, there's a couple of things I, I, I probably need to say about that uh, just to give us our, to get a little bit of a, a, a thing. You see, in Titus, interesting, Titus says this, only the grace of God teaches us to say no. And, and T- Titus argues, look, look, if you, he, he doesn't say this. If you as a Christian start living in a way that is a sinful life, God's going to abandon you. That, that's not what grace is. Grace is, and this is what, this is what Titus teaches, the grace of God teaches us to say no. It's because God will never abandon you. That's why you should live a life that honors God. And so we've always got to put in the forefront of people that the grace that they received when they met Jesus is the same grace that sustains them and changes them from the inside out. And so instead of obeying to make God indebted to us, we obey God because he's done something for us. The two ways could not be more different. God's work of grace in us that changes us, and it's living in that constant flow of God's grace. The Holy Spirit, it's the new covenant, Hebrews chapter 8. It's another talk, but it is God writing his law in our hearts. We immediately introduce people, not just a set of rules, but we say to them, the grace that God gave you when he broke into your life and he forgave your sins is the same grace that will enable you to live for him and give glory in your life to him. It's the indwelling Jesus Christ. I think it's a real challenge. I think we need to keep reminding ourselves how, not how we should behave. Please hear me in this one here. But who we are in Christ, if I'm genuinely a child of Christ, then God's done something. He's revealed himself to me, but he's done something in me and my life has changed forever. Please, sometimes we live under this incredible cloud of condemnation. I don't know if you're a Christian and you think, goodness, I just feel like, I just, it, it's just too hard to be honest with you. Honestly, God isn't disillusioned with you because he had no illusions to begin with. God doesn't hate you. God's not mad at you. God loves you. You see, and we've got to settle this one because no relationship can flourish in an atmosphere of disapproval. No relationship can flourish in an atmosphere of disapproval. Some people live their lives. Honestly, sadly, some marriages are like this. They go, if I do well today, my husband will love me. Husbands, I, honestly, I've heard men say, you know, if I, if I shape up, my, life, my wife will accept me today. You can never build anything on that. What you build on is this, I love you unconditionally. And because of that, we're going to have a good marriage. It, honestly, it's the people live on the teachers do it to children, fathers do it to their children, husbands do it to their wives. You see it in society, you shape up church. 
or God's going to get you. Well, actually, the message is this. Because God loves you and we love you, we're going to change this world together. It's a completely different emphasis. It changes everything. I, I, I want to I say to you, please, have something in your heart that this grace that God gave you, it's not another type of thing. It's the grace of God changing your life. It means this, that we actually do come to the law. This may surprise you. We kind of jettisoned the law. But of course, the reality is, in, the, in, the, uh, in Scripture, uh, it, it's, it's not... It's not that we start the law, we start obeying God, and then God accepts us. It's that we allow Christ to change us. And that leading of the Holy Spirit leads us to live and fulfill the law of God. One of the, one of the laws are, you know, thou shalt not steal. See, if somebody says to me, well, I, I was led by the Spirit to steal a thousand pounds. The only thing you could be sure about was they weren't being led by the Spirit. Uh, okay. But, but you, you don't go, if I don't steal this thousand pounds, God will fill me with the Spirit. Paul in Galatians is very careful. He, talks of, he doesn't say, if you forsake the, the, the lust of the flesh, you will be filled with the Spirit. He said, if you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. It means this. I, I, almost every sin a Christian commits is a relationship issue. So what do you mean? It's that something else is more attractive than the relationship with Jesus. Almost every sin a Christian commits is a relationship issue. I often tell the story, and I'll finish this, bit, this point with this story. I've got a friend who's, uh, he owns an orchard. And uh, one day we were having a walk, one Sunday afternoon, I preached at his church, and, and, uh, and I said to him, Leslie, what makes a good apple? And he said, he said Paul, I take care of the tree, and I never worry about the apples. They take care of themselves. So what do you mean? He said, Paul, look, if you, if you water the tree and you feed it, and you nurture it, and you, and you prune the branches, and you keep the insects off it, he says, you know, end of August, you get great Bramley apples. He says, I never think about the apples. I think about the tree. I thought, well, I'll preach. And, I, and I, honestly, I got a wee notebook out, and I wrote it down. I thought, wow, I'll, I'll use that somewhere. He said, what does it mean? It means this. Look after your relationship with Jesus. Prune the dead wood. Feed it. Develop it. Allow Christ to live in you and begin to flow through you. And you know something? You'll have great fruit in your life. I don't wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to be more joyful today. I'm going to be nicer to people today. Well, sometimes I do that, but... But, uh, you know, I, generally speaking, I don't do that. You know, you don't do What you do is you say, I'm going to take care of my relationship with Jesus. And that, the fruit of the Spirit flows out of that. It's God's work of grace in you. Yes. Now, number three, moving on. It's God's work of grace proclaimed through him. Why do, we, why do we proclaim grace to people who don't believe in guilt? Most people in our society don't believe in guilt. They might believe in shame. And that's, that's another, that's another uh, thing I could talk about. But, but the whole thing of being guilty and separated from God, most people don't believe that. They really like the concept of grace. But actually, grace doesn't make sense if there's no guilt. It doesn't make sense. And I, th I think sometimes, and honestly, I've done it, that in my attempt to make Jesus as nice as possible, 
I try, to, I try to portray him as someone who will come alongside someone, put his arm around them, and love them, and help them through all their difficulties. The problem is, if you treat Jesus like any other helpful product, as soon as it doesn't quite work out in your circumstances, you'll move on to the next little product. So what you've got, what you've got to understand is this, that people need Christ. If you have a young couple walking down the down the banks of the calm, and, uh, and the young man says, I love you. She says, I love you. And he says, but I love you more. No, I love you more. And then he says, I tell you what, I'm going to prove that I love you. I'm going to jump into the calm and drown myself. You go, how would you do that? That doesn't make sense here, doesn't it? See, sometimes we treat Jesus like that. Jesus walking along going, I love you. And you go, and Jesus, then Jesus, then we say, but Jesus died. You well, what? that doesn't make sense. But here's the point. If the girl was in the calm drowning and the young man jumped in to save her, that would be loving, wouldn't it? You'd, go, you'd understand that, okay. You'd say, okay, she was, she was actually perishing and she needed rescuing. So he jumped in and saved her. And in the course of saving her, she got to the shore, but he drowned and lost his life. You'd say, wow, what a love he had for her. You see, men and women are perishing. That's the issue of the gospel. It's not that they simply need an arm around them. They are lost. They are drowning. They are perishing. They need a savior. That's the, that is the issue. But in the middle of that, in the middle of their drowning, a wonderful savior comes along and lifts them out of the water and shows them favor and grace and love. I think the preacher said of simple morality to people, and calling them to a better life can undermine the gospel of grace. We've got to be really careful about this in society. And, and sometimes, we, sometimes we've got to understand that I think our primary task is not to call people to a higher standard of morality, but to tell them about the grace of God. See, sometimes what we want to do in society is this. We want to be, a, we want to be prophets to our society, and we want to say you're a bad lot, and you need to do this, and you need to do that. The, the problem is that that sends the message, if I sorted my behavior out and lifted my, my life up, actually, why would, I, why, why would I need to become a Christian? You've you got to be really, really... I'm not saying it's easy, but preaching morality, I think, can't be the first item on the agenda of the church. You can't shirk it either. Because we have to... We have to convince people that there is a God who speaks in non-negotiable absolutes, and that God is our Savior. Not only does He demand this, but actually He comes in and rescues us when we can't help ourselves. But in the moral debates of the first century, uh, we've got to be careful. Uh, sorry, the moral debates that surround us in society, and there are many of them. And honestly, please, don't get me wrong. I want to live in a better, I want to live in a better world. I wish everybody uh, believed some of the wonderful things I believed about marriage and morality and truth and righteousness and justice and fairness in society. I wish they did, but they don't. And the, 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 the difficulty we have is that sometimes that's what we seem to be saying. But in the struggle for morality in the first century, there actually were a real group of good moral activists. And they rejected relativism, secularism. They had ethical absolutes. They, they believed in monogamy within marriage. They believed in chastity outside of marriage. They believed in the one true God uh, against all the polytheistic standards of the Romans. And they, they were the people who were right. They had the right values. And they were the Pharisees. 
The problem was that the people who held the right values were least responsive to Jesus and his message. In fact, it was actually best received by the people who came, what we would say, on the wrong side of the tracks. In other words, the people who were wrong. The ironic thing about the Pharisees who were right was that their rightness seemed to render them incapable of loving the outsiders. That's the weird thing, isn't it? And I actually worry sometimes that we, we get that name. We're so right that people think we don't love them. And I think there's, there's a struggle there for us. I'm not advocating silence or neutrality on the controversial issues of the day, and there are many of them. I think we do need to, t- we do need to talk about them and, and uh, have a debate about them. But with a desire to live in the truth, we must not devalue our primary task of making disciples. This is Paul Reed speaking. I think the primary task of the church is not just to make a powerful apologetic for Christian values in society. It is to participate in and a witness to the gospel of grace. What if it's just as right, at least as important rather, to love as to be right? Not that more important, but it was just as important. The grace message I think that we have is the only hope for a broken world. It's essentially that people get what they don't deserve. Even Christians struggle with that. I was talking to Andrew earlier, and he said, it took him a few years to get that. It took me the same. It was just the same. I sort of started, Lord, I receive your free salvation, forgiveness of sins, that wonderful, and then started to try and earn my way to God. If I didn't read my Bible every day, God was like the principal who was going to cane me the next day. I would have bad luck or something like that. It just, this weirdness goes on in our heads, our misunderstanding about the grace of God. When you live in a meritocracy as we do, that is you get what you do deserve, to try and tell people, actually, what God wants to do is give you what you don't deserve, is his love and his favor. I got my hair cut recently. I don't laugh, and I went to hairdressers, and uh, Donna, my hairdresser, was, uh, she was crying because she had a pain in her left shoulder. She said, I, was, I couldn't sleep last night. And I had one of those prompts, you know, that one of those horrible prompts, you need to pray for her which I dismissed as a satanic voice in my head. Uh, but I, so I, had a, I made a bargain with God. I said, look, if there's nobody in the barber, it was packed. If there's nobody here when I go up to pay, I'll pray for her. And of course, angels shuffling all the people out, you know. But your hair's not finished. Out you go. Go on, get out there. So there I was, Donna and me. She's taking my money. And I said, Donna, could I pray for you? And she said, she got a bit embarrassed. She said, well, I'll say we prayer." as they say in Belfast, we can be a wee car or a wee prayer, okay? It doesn't mean small, it's just we, all right? Anyway, I'll say, say we've, and I said, no, I'll do it now. And she sort of looked startled and her sister said, well, you've tried everything else, why not try prayer? So I put my hand on her shoulder, asked her permission, and uh, you know, one of those Holy Spirit moments, and I looked her in the eye and I said, Donna, and of course, immediately she starts to, it's tense, you know, she, she doesn't, there's no music, there's no band in the background playing, you know. I mean, she's not swaying or anything, she's just looking me in the eye. And I looked her in there and I said, Donna, here's, here's what, I, 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 let me say this to you. I said, Donna, you, you kind of think that the things that happened in your life are because God's mad at you and he's getting even. And, and you think, actually, even your arm is a bit of a punishment because you're not living the way you should. 
And I, I want to tell you, and these are the words Jesus said, Donna, God's not, I used them before, God's not disillusioned with you. He no illusions with you to begin with. He knew everything about you, and he still loved you, and he still wants to show you his favor and his forgiveness and his grace. And right now, if you'll just simply open up your heart and give your life to Jesus, he'll do that. You can't, you can't think, you know, we're, we're going, you think, am I really saying this here in a barber, in a, in a hairdresser's? And she breaks down. She begins to cry. We get an opportunity to talk further to her, etc. It's an ongoing situation. But what it, what it made me realize is this, that most people in our society, well, they don't, they don't fully understand sin. They do think that there, if there is a God, he's, probably not, he's not, probably not very happy with them. And I think what we need to tell them is that actually he's mad about them. He loves them. He wants to pour his love and favor out into their life. And it might be today, just as I, as I simply finish, and as I finish simply, or well, it might be simply finish, whatever. <laughs> I, I just want to say that God's not mad at you. Yeah, Paul, but you don't. No, no, wait a minute. He said, honestly, God's for you. He said, but you know something, sometimes you get what you deserve. But you see, that's the nature of God's grace. You get what you don't deserve. What is that? The, God, the love of God and the favor of God in your life. The wonderful thing is once you receive it, you can't unreceive it because you never did end to receive it in the first place. You can't repel it. Nothing you've done in your past, nothing you will do in your future, if you've opened yourself up to the love of God, will stop you from enjoying it. You can't unfavor yourself because you never favored yourself anyway. It was given to you by God. When you pick it up, the reign and favor and grace of God in your life never, ever stops. And the source of it is where? The source of it is God's unconditional love for your life. It's not a business agreement. There's no small print. There's no unreadable terms and conditions. It's free, cannot be earned. You can't work yourself up for it. You can't polish yourself up. God, again, is not disillusioned with you. He knows illusions to begin with. He knows who you are, where you've come from. And yet, you know something? The wonderful message that we carry is this, that there's a God who wants to pour his favor on the men and women's life and rescue them from the life they've chosen to live. You are favored by God. Live under that rule and that reign, and your life will never be the same again. Let's pray.